Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Today is January 16th, 2022, and all of Middle Tennessee is in the midst of a winter weather event. As a consequence, most all of the churches here in Middle Tennessee have closed their doors for the morning. But we here at GCA are very fortunate because we do have an online outreach, and so I decided that I would sit down here in my office and teach this morning's lesson so that the MP3s keep going out and so that we can continue talking about the seven churches of Asia. So today, everybody, including the local congregation, We all get to be part of GCA Online. Today we're going to talk about the church at Philadelphia. You should be familiar with that name, Philadelphia, not only because it is a city in Pennsylvania, but because you should be familiar with the two words that make up the compound word Philadelphia. It is a combination of phileo, which means to love, and Adelphus, which means a brother. Consequently, the city of Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love, because that's essentially what that word means. The church in Philadelphia in Asia Minor, the letter that went to them contains no warnings, no condemnations, no judgments from Christ, and A few weeks ago, when I taught on the church in Smyrna, I made the error of saying that Smyrna was the only church that Jesus didn't say anything negative to, and then I did get responses from the online congregation, and I do appreciate that. They keep me honest, and they pointed out that actually Smyrna and Philadelphia had nothing negative said about them. Philadelphia is known as the church of the open door. If we're talking about types of churches, then this is the church that pleases Christ. And amazingly, it appears to be a small church. Jesus even says, you you only have a little dunamis, a little power, which probably means that they were limited in size and limited in their political abilities or influence within the city of Philadelphia. And yet, Jesus commends them for their faithfulness, which right away shows me that size of a church doesn't matter. What matters is the faithfulness of that church in the way that they follow after Christ, the way that they follow after the word, the way that they live out their Christianity, 
that matters more than how many people attend on Sunday morning, because here is Jesus specifically pointing out that they are a small church, that they are limited in their dunamis, in their power, and yet he commends them and says nothing judgmental, nothing condemnatory. He doesn't warn them against anything, and yet they're small. So as I have said for many, many years, quality of a church matters much more than the quantity of the congregation. The city of Philadelphia was part of Lydia the last couple of weeks. We've been talking about the kingdom of Lydia. Philadelphia lays southeast of Sardis, and it was backed by volcanic cliffs, which made the land and the soil very fertile and very rich because of all the volcanic residue in the area. But it also means that Philadelphia was a dangerous place to live because there were just constant earthquakes in that region, which is why, as we've talked about the previous churches and their destruction, oftentimes it was due to earthquakes. Well, same thing in Philadelphia. In fact, according to Strabo, who was a Greek geographer, philosopher, historian, he lived around 63 B.C., died 24 AD, so writing right in the time of Christ there, he said that the city of Philadelphia was in constant danger from earthquakes and that it experienced shocks. We would know them as aftershocks every day. This was an everyday occurrence in Philadelphia, and as a consequence, many of the inhabitants who lived in the region of Philadelphia chose to live outside the city because fewer things are going to fall on you if you're outside the city in the open country. And so they built huts and tents to live in outside the actual city itself. And when we're talking about the seven churches, the seven cities there in Asia Minor, Philadelphia is not as ancient as those other cities. In fact, it was founded in 189 BC, and it was founded along one of the roads that led east toward Pisidia. During its founding, Eumenes II, who was the king of Lydia, was looking for some way that he could honor his younger brother, who was known as Attalus II. His younger brother was very loyal to him, and as a consequence, the king gave him the nickname Philadelphos, or literally one who loves his brother. And then as the city was being built, he named the city after his brother. So that's how it became known as the city of brotherly love. And Philadelphia was founded for a very special purpose. It's situated right on the border of Mysia and Lydia and Phrygia. They all kind of met right there. And so Philadelphia was a border town, but it wasn't a garrison town. It wasn't built up to be a military town because there wasn't a lot of danger right there. Instead, it was founded with the intention of being like a missionary of Greek culture. The Greek language and Greek culture spread to Lydia and Phrygia through Philadelphia. And consequently, 
By 19 AD, the Lydians had forgotten their own Lydian language, and they were practically Greek at that point. In other words, this was a doorway town, and it created trade, and more importantly, created cultural exchange between Mysia and Lydia and Phrygia, and spread Greek culture, and did it very successfully. So as I mentioned, the city was founded in 189 BC as part of Lydia, but then in 133 BC, the city passed into the control of the Romans. Now I mentioned the earthquakes in the area. The same earthquake that leveled Sardis in AD 17 also managed to wreck 12 other cities in that area, including Philadelphia. But the emperor Tiberius decided to relieve the city of Philadelphia from the burden of Roman taxation and help to rebuild that city. And as a consequence, he was worshipped there. And a monument to him was built there. And he was called by the title, the Son of the Holy One. And it's probably for that reason that in this letter, Jesus starts by pointing out that the one who is speaking is he who is holy and who is true, because Jesus is contrasting himself with the emperor worship that's going on there in Philadelphia and the fact that he's called the son of the holy one, and Jesus points out that he is the only truly holy one. He is the true one. Now, as far as the church in the city of Philadelphia, we just don't know a whole lot about how that church was founded. Like I said, they were a small church, even though Philadelphia remained a prosperous city right up into Byzantine times. About the year 600 A.D., the domed Basilica of St. John was built there. And the city really continued to be a prize among warring factions in that area until it was finally taken by the Turks in 1338 and ever since then has been known as Al-Shahir. But what's really important to remember is that during the first few centuries after Christ, there were a lot of Jewish families that were settled in the cities of Western Asia Minor. And that's why the apostles would go there. They visited there. They labored there. They established the first Christian churches there. And John, who was, as I keep repeating, an apostle to the circumcised, and Jesus himself in this very letter, both use really Jewish language. But that's because the audience that they're writing to is largely Jewish. So, all right, let's start looking at the letter itself. First, I'll read through it, and then we'll start taking it apart verse by verse, as we usually do. This is Revelation 3, starting at verse 7, is the beginning of the letter to Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, 
who opens and no one shuts, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell upon the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, in order that no one take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, the first thing that we need to notice is that back in verse 7, at the beginning of the letter to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write, the description that Jesus gives himself here breaks the consistency of the introductions to these letters that we've seen so far. What I mean is, back in chapter 1, John gives us a description of Jesus and the way that he appeared and the things that he said about himself. And then, as these letters have progressively been written, they each began with Jesus hearkening back to part of that original description and those original words. But that's not the case here in Philadelphia. Instead, Jesus describes himself in a way that is completely appropriate for Philadelphia, but it's not part of his original description of himself. He calls himself he who is holy. Now, as I mentioned, that's a really, really Hebrew thing to say, because in the Hebrew scriptures, back in Isaiah 40, verse 25, it is Yahweh who calls himself the Holy One. It reads, To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? So everybody knows that scripturally it is Yahweh who is the only Holy One. And yet here is Jesus saying that he's the Holy One. Jesus is the only other one who's ever referred to this way as being the Holy One. It's yet again another demonstration of the unity between Jesus and Yahweh, that father-son relationship, and that father, son, and spirit are collectively holy. I mean, his spirit is referred to as the Holy Spirit. That phrase, the Holy One of God, is a messianic title for Jesus. 
The demons know that if you look at Mark chapter 1, verses 23 to 25, and by the way, this same account is written about in Luke 4, 34. It says, Just then there was a man in their synagogue who had an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demons of the spiritual realm know that Jesus is the Holy One of God. And the apostles also knew that. John 6, 67 to 69 says, Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So it's really definitional to who Jesus is as the only begotten, the only Son of God. And importantly, it's not the emperor. It's not Tiberius. The only holy Son of God is Jesus, and that is stated in the Old Testament, and that is stated by the apostles. It's even stated by the demons, and no emperor can make claim to being the Holy One of God. But then Jesus adds to the description, He who is holy and who is true. Alathinos is the Greek word, and it occurs both here in Revelation 3.14 and in Revelation 19.11, which says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. That word means it's the real thing. It's the genuine thing. It's the, the ideal. It stands in opposition to everything that is false. And it is opposed to everything that is only a picture or a shadow or a type of the real thing. Jesus is the real thing that all the Old Testament shadows pointed toward, but he also is in direct opposition to everything that is false, to everything that is untrue. So Jesus starts this letter by pointing out that he is the holy one and he is the true one. Because he's the true one, he cannot lie. He even said that when he was describing what heaven was going to be like, and said to his apostles, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am you may also be. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places, and if it were not so, I would have told you. Because he is the true one. He is more than just simply the embodiment of the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. But he himself in what he says, in what he represents, in what he teaches, he himself is true in every aspect of who he is and what he has to say. And that makes him different than every leader that the world has ever produced. It's almost a joke these days that politicians lie. We just expect them to lie. 
So in opposition to all humans and all world leaders, Jesus presents himself as being true. And it is that holy one, that true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and he will shut it and no one opens it. Now again, that's a very, very Hebrew thing to say. If the church that he was writing to was filled with Gentiles only, they would have no reference point for these things that Jesus is saying. The place in the Old Testament where we see this reference to the key of David is back in Isaiah 22, which is actually a prophecy against Shebna, who was an officer in the court of Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah was a good, noble king, but Shebna was a wicked, deceitful, proud man who, as some Jewish historians have said, he conspired with Assyria in their attack against Jerusalem. And Shebna had had this position as the household treasurer for a long time. He was probably put in place by Hezekiah's father, Ahaz. But then God, who sees through these things, recognized that Shebna was setting up a memorial to himself. He was even making a prominent gravesite for himself so that he would be remembered for generations to come because he would be in this tomb that was hewed into the stone. So despite being an enemy to Jerusalem, he really thought he was something. Here, I'm going to start reading at Isaiah 22, verse 15. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the royal household. What right do you have here? And whom do you have here that you have hewn a tomb for yourself here? You who hew a tomb on the height, you who carve a resting place for yourself in the rocks. Behold, the Lord is about to hurl you headlong, O man, and he is about to grasp you firmly and roll you tightly like a ball to be cast into the vast country. And there you will die. And there your splendid chariots will be, you shame of your master's house. And I will depose you from your office, and I will pull you down from your station. And then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him, and I will entrust him with your authority. And he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut, and when he shuts, no one will open. And I will drive him like a peg in a firm place, and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. So that gives us some idea historically what the key of David is. The chief steward of the house of David is the one who had the keys, and he had the authority to say, 
whether any door in the house was left open or closed. And it was completely up to him. Nobody else had that authority. If he opened it, it stayed open. If he closed it, it stayed closed. And that's what the key of David is. But now Jesus picks it up and uses it as part of his royal claims as both the Lord and the head of the house of David. So it's really looking forward to and anticipating his rule and his kingdom here on earth. And importantly, that he lets in whoever he lets in. He keeps out whoever he keeps out. He opens, he shuts, and nobody can deny his absolute power and his absolute authority over the house of David. And I certainly don't think Jesus at this point was talking about the physical house of David. He's talking about the kingship. He's talking about the generations who have come from David who know full well that there is this prophecy that some future son of David is going to sit on David's throne and is going to establish the kingdom forever. And Jesus is pointing out that he is that forever king. So listen to the authority that he is establishing for himself when he writes to the messenger of the church at Philadelphia. Before he says anything, he establishes his absolute authority. I'm the one who is holy, and nobody but God is holy. I am the one who is true. I stand in direct opposition to everything that is untrue or false. And I have the authority that comes from being in charge of the household of David. And I'm the one who opens and no one shuts. I'm the one who shuts and no one opens. I am the absolute sovereign. I am the king. I am in charge. I'm holy. And I'm telling you the truth. After an introduction like that, you would think that the people in Philadelphia would sit up and take notice of what he says. Verse 8, I know your deeds. I have pointed this out repeatedly in talking about these churches in Asia. I have pointed out how often Jesus says, I know. I know your persecution. I know what you're living amongst. I know the society around you. I know you. I know your thoughts. I know your deeds. I know your behavior. I know your behavior. I know what you deserve credit for. And I know why you should be condemned. I'm the one who knows. And because I am absolutely true, these things that I know about you are true of you. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Now we get some sense of why he pointed out that he is the authority who has the key of David's house and that he can open and close doors whenever he wants. He says, before you, church at Philadelphia, though you're small, though you don't have much power, I've put before you this open door that no one can close. Because you have a little power, a little dunamis, a small amount of it, and yet, despite that, despite what little 
influence you may have politically, despite the fact that you may not be numerous, despite all that, you've kept my word and you have not denied my name. And that, to me, defines what a faithful church does, what a faithful church is like, what a faithful church considers important. First off, they keep God's word. They keep the words of Christ. They store them up. They hold on to them. They behave according to them. Their lives are dictated by them. And the words of God are more precious than any other worldly object that we might have. To be a faithful church, you keep the word of Christ and don't deny his name. You don't deny his authority. You don't deny his power. And you don't deny who he is. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the very Son of God. And despite how much persecution may come your way, despite the politics of even our own day that might want to suppress the name of Jesus, we nevertheless do not deny it. That is what a faithful church does. That's what a faithful church looks like. We keep the word and we don't deny him. But now let's talk for just a moment about what this means when he says, I've put before you an open door which no one can shut. That actually does already have a biblical precedent that we can go back and look at so that we can clarify what Jesus means by saying that. Now, at this point, it was my intention to hand out several passages for people to read The first of them is 1 Corinthians 16. I'm going to start reading at verse 5, where Paul writes and says this to the church at Corinth, But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing, For I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. In that passage, obviously, Paul is saying there are many opportunities for teaching Christ here in Ephesus. He gives Christ the credit for that. And he calls it a wide door for effective service that has been opened for me. The second example comes from the book of Acts, chapter 14, verse 27, which says, When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So again, Paul refers to the opportunity to teach Christ, in this case, particularly to the Gentiles, as something that he didn't do himself. He just went through the door that was already open to him. He, God, opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. The third passage comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul writes, Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, and a door stood open for me in the Lord. So again, Paul uses this 
open door language to say that he was there to preach the gospel of Christ, and then an opportunity arose. And the fourth passage comes from his letter to the Colossians, chapter 4, starting to read at verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open to us a door for the word so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to proclaim it. So clearly and obviously, Paul, one more time, has used this language of an open door, gave God the credit for it, pray that God will open a door, and that open door is an opportunity to proclaim the mystery of Christ. And Paul says, I want to make it clear. I want to know the way that I ought to proclaim it. So the open door language, always consistently in the New Testament, is the language of opportunity to spread the word of Christ. And that makes perfect sense in the context of Revelation 3.8. I know your deeds, and behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. So even though they had only a little power, whatever that means, whether they were small in number, whether they didn't have a great deal of influence societally or politically. They didn't have any power to themselves, and yet they were consistent in keeping his word. Despite being small, they did not deny his name, and they walked through the door that he himself had opened for them. And Jesus knew it. I know your deeds. So it's a really wonderful description of this church. You're a small church. You're not a particularly powerful church, but you're a faithful church. You hold on to my word. You don't deny me. And you keep walking through the opportunities that I put in front of you. I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Now let me put one more fine point on this. The phrase, you have kept my word, that's the Greek word tereo. And what it means is more than just kept it. It means you've watched over it. You've guarded it. You preserved it. It means to, to keep an eye on something, to keep it safe. So not only were they proclaiming the word of Christ, but they were protecting it. They were guarding it and keeping it. So it's much more than just maintaining it as an idea in their mind. They were willing to defend his word. And that's all part of that not denying his name. And why would they, as a largely Jewish community, need to be careful to protect the word of Christ and not deny his name. Well, that is answered in verse 9. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and I will make them know that I have loved you. 
whether at Jerusalem or anywhere else, anywhere that you see a community of Jews in the first century, there are those who are being converted to Christ, and then there is the opposition among the Jews. And just like in Smyrna, those Jews persecuted the Christian Jews. Now that phrase, the synagogue of Satan, a synagogue is just a meeting place. And so there was a meeting place of the unconverted Jews there in Philadelphia. Not only was there a church belonging to Christ in Philadelphia, but there was a synagogue of Jews also in Philadelphia. And yet Jesus said that they were the synagogue that belonged to Satan, which is a genitive of possession. In other words, it's Satan's synagogue. It's Satan's gathering place. Satan was the head and the power behind the scenes that was driving that group, that gathering of Jews who were persecuting the Christian Jews. And yet, despite all that persecution, Jesus compliments them for the fact that they have protected his word and have not denied his name. And all of that combined is why it's so important that he would point out that he has put before them an open door that no one can shut. The opportunity for the gospel, despite this persecution, despite the synagogue of Satan standing against them, nevertheless, this opportunity cannot be shut down. It cannot be stopped. It's an open door that Christ himself opened, and no one can shut it. The same way that Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it? That was demonstrated there in Philadelphia. He was busy building his church, and he opened the door of opportunity for them to go and preach his word. And they protected his word. They kept his word. They did not deny who he is or his authority or his power or his sovereignty, despite the fact that they were opposed by the synagogue of Satan, who, by the way, is false in everything, is false in all his lies. He was the father of lies, a liar from the beginning. And so this is yet again another example of why Jesus referred to himself as true. He's true. Satan is false. Jesus is in control. Now, when we were talking about the church in Smyrna, I pointed out that this idea of Jews who were under the control of Satan has a biblical precedent. Like in Romans 2, starting in verse 28, you may recall Paul wrote, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, And his praise is not from people, but from God. So Paul himself set up two different categories of Jewish people. Those who were Jewish outwardly, and yet they would be opposed to, they would persecute the Jew who was changed inwardly, the Jew who was following Christ himself. And again, that very dynamic was set up in Philadelphia. So it's really a tremendous compliment to them that they would withstand even their own brethren, who Jesus would point out were gathering in a synagogue that belonged to Satan, 
And they, despite the opposition, they, the believers at the church in Philadelphia, held on to his word and protected his word and would not deny his name. Christianity, as I keep arguing, Christianity is the fulfillment, the completion of genuine Judaism. And that's why Jesus would say things to the Pharisees like in John 8, starting at verse 44. He said to them, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So you can see the enormous contrast between Jesus saying, they're the synagogue of Satan, and his description of Satan is that he is a murderer from the beginning who does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him, and yet Jesus would say, I'm true. I'm the one who is holy and true. In Matthew 23, starting in verse 15, we read, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice the son of hell as yourselves. So Jesus has clearly defined the camps. Those Jews who deny him, who deny the completion of their Judaism, they are under the influence, under the blindness, under the lying teaching of Satan himself. And even when they convert somebody to their way of thinking, all they've done is convert them to that same hellish doctrine that caused Jesus to condemn them in the first place. And yet, the church at Philadelphia, despite any conflict or persecution that comes from their own Jewish brothers, they hold on to Jesus, hold on to his word. They don't deny his name, even though the pressure to deny his name had to have been tremendous. And I can only imagine the kind of arguments that had to go on in Philadelphia between people with a common heritage and a common genealogy and a common background. And yet, the church at Philadelphia considered the word of Jesus, the name, the reputation of Jesus to be more important than their own heritage, their own background, their own genealogy. They were willing to withstand all of that for the sake of Christ. And I really appreciate Jesus' own sense of justice. Those in the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews but are not, they are lying because Jesus himself is the satisfaction, is the fulfillment of Judaism. And he's going to make them come and do obeisance to the church at Philadelphia who were faithful to his word and to his name. And not just cause them to become subservient to those that they hated in this lifetime, but also to cause them to understand, to know for sure that Jesus, the one who is the holy truth, he loved the faithful church. And that is why he is causing those who have followed the teaching of Satan to come and bow down at their feet. That is sovereign justice 
at its finest. Jesus says to them in verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, which, by the way, in the environment that I have just described in Philadelphia, you would have to persevere. You would have to stand strong and not deny Christ and keep his word and persevere in the faith despite all of that. And so Jesus says, because you did that, because you kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. That is a very eschatological thing for Jesus to say, but it's also grounded in what we already know from the Jewish scriptures. We already know about this time of testing. The word Testing is the Greek parasmos, which means a trial or a temptation or, in fact, a testing. But here, it's a worldwide testing. It's a worldwide tribulation to come. And there is a definite article on it. Now, I know in the Greek, definite articles are used differently sometimes than we use them in English. But when you read the phrase, the hour of testing, it's Jesus referring to a very specific time of testing and trial. And then the word world here is not cosmos, which is what we're used to when we see the word world. Instead, it's oikomene, which means the inhabited earth. But then it is modified by the adjective holos, which means the whole or the complete. So this testing that Jesus is talking about is worldwide testing on the whole world. And that testing is on particular people. It's on those who dwell upon the earth. Now the construction in the Greek, and excuse me for throwing in a little bit of technicality here, That's a substantival, present, articular, participle. And all that really means is that it describes the inhabitants of the earth as those who are characterized as being earth dwellers. And in the book of Revelation, that phrase is used several times. So it becomes like a technical term for unbelievers because they are the earth dwellers. In other words, they are the people who are bound in this lifetime to this lifespan and what they can get out of it. But they have no heavenly destiny. Their dwelling is on earth. And that concept starts all the way back in Isaiah twenty four seventeen, which says, terror and pit and snare confront you you inhabitants of the earth. These earth dwellers are the people who Jesus is particularly pointing at in the book of Revelation. For instance, in Revelation 6, 10, I'm actually going to start reading at verse 9, when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been killed because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained 
And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who live on the earth? Those are the earth dwellers. Then in chapter 8 of Revelation, starting in verse 13, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in the mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who live on the earth, the earth dwellers, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. And then in chapter 11, I'm going to start reading at verse 9. This is talking about the two final witnesses and how their dead bodies are going to lay in the street of the great city that is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified, so we know that their bodies will lay in Jerusalem. And those from the peoples, the tribes, the languages, and the nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not allow their bodies to be laid in the tomb. And then Revelation 11.10 says, And those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers, will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they'll send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers. Then in Revelation chapter 13 we see a dragon standing on the sand of the seashore and then a beast coming up out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. We'll talk about all that in the future, but importantly, verse 9 then tells us, all who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers, will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written since the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slaughtered. So now it's very clear who the earth dwellers are. The earth dwellers are those people whose names have not been written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, and that's why they are specifically called earth dwellers. In that same chapter then, in verse 14, we read, And he deceives those who live on the earth. Naturally, he, the murderer, the deceiver, the liar, is going to convince the people who are left on the earth because they're not in the Lamb's Book of Life, and he manages to deceive them, those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers, because of the signs that it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who live on the earth, the earth dwellers, to make an image to the beast who had a wound of a sword and has come to life. So, We're getting a pretty good feel for who these earth dwellers are. One last passage. Revelation chapter 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and to go into destruction. And those who live on the earth, those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. So now that's the consistent testimony from the book of Revelation about who the earth dwellers are. And that's all consistent with what Jesus said in Luke 21. I'm going to start reading at verse 34. Be on guard 
so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. So what Jesus said to the church there in Philadelphia is very consistent with what he's been talking about all along. There is a time, an hour, a particular moment of testing, and it's going to come upon the whole earth. We just know of it as the tribulation the great. We know of it as the day of the Lord, the wrath of God. And Jesus tells his followers, don't get so involved in the worries of this life, dissipation and drunkenness and all of that, because if you do, then that day is going to come on you suddenly like a trap, because it's going to come on all the people who dwell on the face of the earth. May I add parenthetically that that is not for the church, because Jesus said he's going to keep some people from that time of temptation and testing. That's what Revelation 3.10 says. Jesus, speaking to the church at Philadelphia, says, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you the same way that you have protected my word, the same way that you have watched out for my reputation and my name, I will now keep you, same thing, from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come on the whole world to test the earth dwellers. The church is not among the earth dwellers. And Jesus promises to keep some people from that hour of testing. Jesus knows how to keep his own, he knows how to preserve his own, and he will do that when the wrath of God is finally poured out. And it is in that context that he says, verse 11, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have. Remember, they don't have a lot of power. They're a small church, and yet he says, cling to, keep, hold fast to what you do have so that no one takes your crown. Now, first off, the word taku, we've talked about it before, it means suddenly or unexpectedly without any kind of announcement. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to come soon, like he said this in 92, 96 AD, and he hasn't been back for a couple thousand years. That word still applies because what he's saying is, I will come back when you don't expect it, when people aren't looking for it, at a time when they are saying, peace, peace, then sudden destruction is going to fall on them. That's what he's talking about. I'm going to come suddenly. I'm going to come quickly. So hold fast, which is really just a warning against any kind of spiritual carelessness or any carnality, just like he said back here in Luke 21, don't get stuck in the things of the world, dissipation, drunkenness, the worries of this life. Instead, cling to me, hold fast, keep to me, and live your life in light of the fact that I'm coming, and I'm coming soon. I'm coming without announcement, unexpectedly. And when I come, the earth dwellers are going to fall under my condemnation. But, great news, I will keep my own from that hour of condemnation, from that hour of testing. So you've kept my word, I will keep you. 
I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, so that no one will take your crown. Now, we've talked about this in the past. When John was writing to the church at Smyrna, Jesus said, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And this is the same word. This is Stephanos. It's a victor's crown, like at some kind of competitive or Olympic games. And this is yet again another example of how Hebrew this letter really is, and really how the whole book of Revelation is so very Jewish. The Old Testament is full of warnings. Old Testament prophets put forward a lot of warnings. And consequently, the writer of the book of Hebrews, a Hebrew writing to Hebrews, continues all those warnings. And so Jesus does the same thing here. I'm coming suddenly, so hold on to what you have because you don't want to fall under that condemnation that the earth dwellers are going to fall under and make sure that no one is able to take that victor's crown from you. Hold fast because that reward exists and then you are to walk out your life in such a way that you are protecting that crown, that you're making sure that the end result of your life is that you're going to receive that reward of a crown. Very much like Paul saying when writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, he wrote, As for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I've remained faithful, so we know what he means by I have finished the race. I have remained consistent to Christ, and now a prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness. And so that same crown of righteousness is promised to the faithful saints in Philadelphia. And the church at Philadelphia, and indeed all saints in all churches everywhere, are told to cling to what we have received and to guarantee that no one takes our crown. Jesus continues in Revelation 3, verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. In my introduction to this lesson, however long ago that was, I pointed out to you that in Philadelphia, there were daily earthquakes and aftershocks happening in the ground around them, causing people to not even want to live within the city and among the walls and buildings there, but they would live out in the surrounding country. I think that is the inspiration behind Jesus saying that he who overcomes is going to be a pillar in the temple of my God. Pillars don't move. They're stable. They are the support for a building. And so Jesus says, even though you've been literally tossed about, even though you live in fear of constant earthquakes, the day is coming when I'm going to bring you complete stability. And you'll not only dwell in the temple of my God, 
but you will not go out from it anymore. You will be permanently installed in the temple of my God, the place where the worship of my God is. That's where you're going to be, and nobody can take you out of it, because I'm the one who opens and no one can close, and I close and no one can open, and I can put you permanently in the temple of my God, and you won't go out from it anymore. And I will write on him, the one who overcomes, I will write on him a couple of things. First, the name of my God. As we continue through the book of Revelation, we're going to see that the false prophet and the little horn are going to cause people to take a mark on their right hand and their forehead. That mark shows ownership. And yet here is Jesus saying, I'm going to write on my people the name of my God. That is permanent ownership. But beyond that, I'm going to write on them the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem. Now, we are a long way from getting to Revelation chapter 21, but when we get there, we're going to see the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, the permanent city of God. And I have said repeatedly that this letter is very Jewish, in its language, here again we see this reference to Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem, just like there was an old covenant and a new covenant, just like there was an old priesthood and a new priesthood. There was the law of Moses and there was the law of Christ. All of this newness is represented all the way through the Bible, and here there is a new Jerusalem. And almost like foreshadowing what he's going to talk about in chapter 21, he describes the new Jerusalem as coming down out of heaven from my God. And as if that weren't enough, we know that Jesus is returning with a name that no man knows except he himself. And on his people, he's going to write his new name. Again, a sign of ownership but also a sign of exclusivity. The earth dwellers won't ever know this name of Jesus. So the name of God is going to be written on the people who overcome. And also they are going to be permanent residents of the New Jerusalem, so much so that they're going to have the name of New Jerusalem written on them. And then also they're going to have the new name that Jesus is given. And remember, previously, we read that the overcomers are going to be given a white stone with a new name written on it. So all of this new stuff is happening. The old is passed away, and there's all of this future eschatological newness happening. So the two camps are very clear. The people who belong to Christ on whom Christ is going to write the name of God and write the name of the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven and his own new name, or the other camp is the earth dwellers who fall under the condemnation and judgment of God. And there's no in-between. Those are the two camps. And the faithful saints of Philadelphia are included in the group who are going to receive 
the new names, and the new Jerusalem. I mean, that's just a really wonderful, incredible promise. And why are they receiving these promises? Because even though they're small, even though they don't have a lot of influence, political authority, money apparently, social ability, no real power. And nevertheless, the one thing they have is faithfulness to the word of Christ, to the name of Christ, to the reputation of Christ. And for that reason, they are receiving all these magnificent eternal rewards and they are being kept from the time of testing that is going to come upon the whole world. And that is a type of church. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to wrap up here. Since it's just me sitting here at my desk in my office, I hope you won't mind if I make a little personal application here. Even though GCA is technically a church in Smyrna, the church at Smyrna is not the church that I most relate to. The church I most relate to is the church in Philadelphia. Because the description of being a small church, of being a church without a lot of clout, without a lot of power, but a church that nevertheless has this wide open door, that describes GCA. That's the type of church that I relate to because we are just a Small church here in Smyrna, Tennessee, when people come to visit us, sometimes they'll say things like, I wasn't even sure if I was in the right place. If it weren't for the sign out front, I wouldn't have known this was where you meet because we meet in a converted house. And the inside is very church-like and the inside has been redesigned completely. But from the outside, it looks like another house on the block. And that building has served us well, and we have never grown to be a big, influential, politically connected megachurch. In fact, in the entire history of GCA, we have never been part of any denomination. We don't have any presbytery or church convention that we're part of that would help us monetarily, that would help secure us and help grow us. We don't have any of that. The experiment started 20 years ago with just a small handful of people putting out the Word of God, and we figured out pretty early on that the Internet was the future of communication, and we started putting our messages online. And now, even though we are just a church without a whole lot of power here in Smyrna, Tennessee, nevertheless, we have this really astounding Internet outreach. And I give God all the glory for that. I give Christ all the glory because other churches have tried to do what we've done, and they do it with varying levels of success. And yet, Christ has put before us this open door, and it is how we have survived all these years. And so we continue at GCA to keep, to protect, to hold on to, to proclaim the Word of God, which is why we just go through books of the Bible verse by verse 
in order to proclaim the word of God. And we do not, and we have not, and by God's good grace and his power, we will not deny Christ. We will always promote his name, his reputation, his glory, and his grace. And all the praise is his and his alone for the open door that he has faithfully set before us. And I am ever so grateful for that. Next week, we'll look at the church at Laodicea. Thanks for being with me today. And God willing, we'll all gather around the word again this coming Wednesday and the following Sunday and as long as God gives us collectively the breath to do it. Talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.